So if you want there to be fewer bears, if you're out there to help protect elk, protect a deer, and there's, you know, a lot or too many bears in the unit or area, then you should probably be targeting sows. If you're just out there for the fun of it, or you want an especially big bear, then you should be targeting boars. It really takes a trained eye to tell the difference between the two and determining bear size, especially when they're out on hillside, is really, really difficult. They are one of the toughest animals out there to field judge accurately. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Hello, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about spring bear hunting. And the first thing we need to talk about spring bears is why to go. First of all, it's a lot of fun and it's really challenging. There's plenty of bears. So any place that it's legal to go hunt bears in the springtime means that the population can sustain it because the biologists in that state have done the work to understand what the bear populations are like. There are exceptions to this, like Washington State, which banned spring bear hunting. Um, That's still in contest, and hopefully those hunters can get that back. But there's plenty of bears in Washington State, and it can definitely sustain harvest. And the science definitely indicated that, but people felt a little bit emotional about the issue. So, you know, what happens when emotions get involved in uh, making decisions? Turns out, uh, not the best of things. So Washington can no longer hunt spring bears, but there's seven or eight or nine states where you can. If you want to do sort of a backcountry, high angle type hunt, like like what you would experience for bighorn sheep or, or even mountain goats or mule deer or elk, you can get all of that that you would experience with those animals in terms of terrain, um, even some of the hunting styles, but it's going to be different because it's a different animal. Now, Bears are are really cool animals, and they're probably my favorite animal to watch in the wild because they just do random things all the time. Another reason to go is that it's springtime, and what else do you have going on hunting-wise? You know, you can go out and you can hunt coyotes, you can hunt mountain lions if you're in Oregon, you can hunt turkeys, but probably you've just kind of been hanging out for the winter and now the the weather's getting nice or at least intermittently nice 
and it's a good time to go out and start hardening up your feet and and getting in the in the woods and in the mountains and the canyons and that's a good time of year to be out there another reason is to help out our ungulate populations so we commonly will blame other animals first for predation um, like coyotes or cougars or bobcats or wolves and all these predators do definitely take a toll on deer and elk populations I don't think bobcats kill elk all that often, but they definitely kill deer, um, a lot more deer than, than you would probably expect. And, and coyotes kill plenty of them, but bears kill a ton of fawns and elk calves, like a lot, a lot. So some of the numbers that I've seen have been between 30 and 40 um, in bears that get in areas that have elk calves and same thing with, uh, with deer fawns. So it's, it's a pretty significant impact on the population of your elk and your deer if you can remove a bear. And if you can do it in the springtime before that calving and fawning occurs, then you know, you've, you've made a significant difference in the population. So something that I really encourage people to do is to go out and if they can, hunt for spring bears in an area where they're planning on going back and hunting for deer or elk in the fall. It's going to help you understand that terrain a lot better, um, get you comfortable with where the camps are, where to find the water. Um, you're going to be able to see some deer and elk while you're out there probably. And in addition to, to all that, if you're successful with your bear, then when you go back and you remove an elk or remove a deer um, during your own hunt, well, you've already kind of provided space for that animal by making sure that there's more deer and elk available you know just kind of makes sense like put money into the the account before you make a withdrawal so that's another way to look at it uh, the meat can be really good um, it can also be really awful uh, and it really depends on the time of year and what that bear is eating we'll get into that a little bit later lots of reasons to go good time of year to get out but when to apply now this is something that catches a lot of hunters with their pants down. If you want to apply for spring bear in Alaska, you need to do it in December. And I think December 5th, maybe it's, it's fairly early in December, but you need to do it basically as soon as you get done listening to this episode, if you want to apply for a spring bear hunt in Alaska. Now, Black bears in Alaska, you can hunt without a guide. Grizzly bears, you cannot hunt without a guide. So that can be a really cost prohibitive thing because if you're going to go hunt grizzlies or brown bears, man, you're looking at well over $10,000 and in some cases closer to like twenty dollars or $30,000. Black bear is something that you can go up there and have that Alaskan adventure experience and do it without a guide and be able to save yourself a heck of a lot of money. In Oregon, the deadline to apply for spring bears is in February. Again, that catches people off guard because it's the only application that has that that early deadline. So a lot of times it just, you know, people, people let it go. So uh, some of our spring bear hunts here in Northeast Oregon take um, two or three or even four years of application to draw. There's a lot of myths about why people should 
be applying for one unit versus another. I haven't seen the size of bears really differentiate between um, any of these units in northeastern Oregon. Our bears aren't all that big. I think there's only been a couple bears that have been over 400 pounds that have ever been killed in the state. And a lot of bears that are, you know, 250 or 300 pounds uh, in real life sort of get called 400 pound bears because they do look really, really big. Even a, a 200 pound bear looks pretty darn big. Uh, I don't think that size should be a real big determining factor in, in what kind of bear you go after. It's not for me, but if that's a big deal for you, then, you know, do your research on areas. People will pick areas in this region based off of sort of rumors about how many color phase bears are in that area. Color phase means um, the color that that bear actually is, which can change throughout their life and often does. So typically cubs will have a lot lighter coat than than a two-year-old bear or three-year-old bear, and they, they sort of shift towards a darker color as they go. In, in my area, black is the least common color of all. I almost never see an actual black black bear. What's a lot more common are chocolate bears, which are sort of a, a milk chocolate brown color. We have cinnamon bears that can be orange or red. Um, you know, one that I shot in, uh, in Hell's Canyon last year was the color of like I don't know, buffalo hot sauce or something. It was like a straight up orange bear. It was really cool. You can have blonde bears, which are sort of the color of, of old grass. Um, blonde bears are really cool. Uh, one that I got this fall here in Oregon was sort of a gray color. Looked blonde from a distance, but as you got close, it, uh, it looked like coffee with too much milk in it. Really, really pretty. So I think you can find that in just about any of these units and uh yeah i wouldn't pick one over another based on that and i see a lot of guys waiting for specific units for three or four years when they could be hunting bears every other year and be getting that same experience but getting it more often a bear tag in oregon cost 16 dollars and 50 cents costs eight dollars to apply that's for residents and non-residents um, and whether you're a resident or a non-resident, you have to buy a hunting license in order to apply. So that's a little bit about spring bear applications. Uh, I don't know if there is controlled hunting for spring bear in other states. Um, a lot of states, you can just buy it over the counter. Montana is a great example of that. As a non-resident, there are very few hunts in Montana that you can still get over the counter. This has changed dramatically in the last couple of years. Uh, sort of the same thing in Idaho anymore, but spring bear is something that you can get over the counter every single year. And in Idaho, there's areas where you can get two bear tags. And then if you want to go out of the country, Canada has absolutely excellent spring bear hunting. And those guys are really good at it. Those outfitters up there are set up. They've got great baits. They've got really remote areas where bears rarely see people. If you want to have just close interactions with bears, that's probably the place to do it. Idaho allows baiting. Uh, it, it just changes state by state. So that's a little bit about when to apply, which is basically a lot earlier than you think. When to go. Uh, we have bear seasons here that open on April 1st. They used to open on April 15th. 
Uh, there's a season out in Idaho that opens on April 10th. Uh, there's seasons farther north that don't open until May. Some areas in Idaho run as far as like the middle or end of June. I think you can hunt all the way through June in some areas in Canada. A little bit about when to go. I like to go as early as possible. One, I'm chomping at the bit and... Uh, two, I really like to hunt from river corridors and in April it's before our winter is breaking loose. So the high country is still going to have plenty of snow in it. The low country close to the river is going to start growing green grass, which is what the bears are targeting. Get into that a little bit later. And then, uh, you know, typically by the end of April, first of May, we're starting to have ice out and, and really breaking out that snow out of the high country and these rivers can increase in volume a ton. So a river that might be running 1200 CFS in April could easily be, you know, 25,000 cubic feet per second by the time you get to the middle of May. And if you're camped on the river during that time, uh, if you camp in the wrong spot, then, uh, you know, you can have everything wash away or it can become hazardous to boat on it. Um, you can start getting a lot of trees coming down, which is really common in the spring. And boating with logs is uh, is less than ideal. You don't want to be sharing the river with a bunch of logs that are um, floating down and then constantly falling into the river. It's a little bit scary. Now, if we're going to Alaska, their season gets split up a little bit in the springtime between when you're required to take the meat from the bear and when you're not required to take meat from the bear. And I don't remember that date specifically. It's around June 1st, if not June 1st. And that's basically um, centered around what the bears are eating. So prior to that date is uh, when bears are focused on consuming vegetation and the meat tends to be pretty good. Um, as soon as they start eating fawns, then the Alaskans consider that bear meat not good and uh, you're no longer required to take that meat. So as soon as fawns or elk calves or moose calves start hitting the ground, the bears are definitely going to switch to that. When they first come out of the den, their digestive system isn't quite set up to be able to eat meat and carrion and, you know, bone and all, all that stuff that bears uh, really do well on for most of the year. So they're going to focus on new tender green vegetation, whether that's, you know, sedges or forbs or grasses, but primarily grasses in, in my experience is what they're going to be out eating. And when you can see that fresh little green grass coming up, that's where bears are really going to be focused on nibbling on that. And uh, bear meat tends to be pretty good at that time. Uh, another factor is if they've got a winter coat on when they first come out of the den and they molt and you know, start growing out their summer coat, which is a lot thinner hair, doesn't have sort of that, that fur under underlining that helps insulate them so well inside their dens. And they're going to start rubbing on rocks and logs and, you know, whatever they can to get some of that hair off, especially as, as parasites like, like ticks or fleas or whatever start to get on them. They want to, they want to be able to rub and scratch that stuff off. And you'll see bears get out and they'll lean up against a tree and rub their back back and forth and you know really act a lot like me I guess or you if you're the kind of person that likes to lean against something and rub their back a little bit so as they do that they're going to create some sort of bear looking 
B-A-R-E, looking patches on their, on their skin. And, uh, and that's less desirable, especially if you want to keep that, that skin, that fur, uh, whether you're going to make a rug out of it or, or, uh, do some other kind of taxidermy, some way to like keep and, and honor that bear or use it, right? If you want to make a, a pair of shaps or, you know, whatever, you know, bear hide is a, is a useful thing, especially with that fur on it. You can use something to make yourself nice and warm, make some mittens. I don't know. Another thing is the earlier in the year that you can get them, the closer to coming out of a den, the longer their claws are because they're not really digging for stuff yet. And they've just been spending all winter growing out their fingernails in, inside their little den. Uh, where they den is kind of interesting. Uh, in my area, most of the bears den in hollow trees um, or, or underneath great big trees then some of them actually do find caves. They find caves in, in rocks or they find holes that they can dig out or that are already dug out. And in the fall, they'll gather big bundles of, of grass and pine needles and vegetation. And they'll actually carry that stuff a little bit. And they're kind of like a loose hay bale. And they'll bring that over to the front of their den and they'll They'll actually bring it in and they'll make a bed to lay on and then they'll make another bit that they'll use to plug the entrance to that den. And they do that for a couple of reasons. One is it helps keep them warmer and another is to help keep their scent inside the den because wolves especially will come along and dig bears out of their dens and kill them and, and kill their cubs. And they're actually going to be having their cubs when they're in that den, if, if they're a, uh, a pregnant female. So that's kind of a scary time for them to, to be in a den because that can happen. But uh, yeah, that's a couple of reasons why they actually plug those dens up. And you'll, you'll catch bears in the fall um, occasionally doing that, which is a really neat thing to see. And typically it's going to be in that October time frame that you see them actually prepping a den. Um, another thing is, uh, is your hunting tactics. So if you want to catch bears that are just grazing or traveling to find places to graze, then, you know, April is going to be a good time of year to do that. Early May is going to be a good time of year to do that. As you get towards June, that's when the rut is going to start picking up, um, when they're actually going to start breeding and they'll be much more focused on each other. Again, a good time to uh to hunt especially if you can do that the Oregon season closes at the end of May so we really don't get that opportunity but if you want to kill a big male bear a boar then the rut is a good time to do that because he's going to throw caution to the wind a little bit in in search of females to breed during that time as well he's going to be trying to kill as many um, bear cubs as he can find because if a sow has cubs with her, uh, she will not go into heat. So then, uh, she can't be bred. If he kills the cubs, then she'll come into heat and he can breed that sow. So the breeding is more important to the boar than actually having the offspring. There is some debate about whether a boar will kill his own cubs or not. There's basically science in both directions. Some that says that they will not, and some that says that they'll they'll kill any cub that they can. I'm more in the camp that they either can't tell the difference or don't care to, and uh, if boars get an opportunity to kill cubs, they'll do it. They'll often kill sows um, in addition to that 
when the sows are, are defending their cubs. Which brings me to a point about whether you should be targeting sows or targeting boars. Now, there's really nothing wrong with either. Legally, you can't hunt a sow um, with cubs. And that language gets changed a little bit state by state. But if she's got baby bears with her, we're not going to hunt that sow. Okay, that's that's illegal and it's immoral. There was a time when um, that was being pushed in Alaska when they're really trying to reduce their brown bear and grizzly bear populations. And it's a great way to do that. I think that if you if you intentionally harvest a sow that doesn't have cubs with her that, that's legal to hunt, then you're going to reduce the, the bear population in a meaningful way because now she's not going to have um, be able to have cubs in the future. And if you instead uh, hunt a boar instead of a sow, then you're probably going to have even more bears because he would have been out killing cubs and breeding sows and creating more cubs other boars can come along and do that breeding a boar can can cover a lot of different sows so you need fewer boars in your population than you need sows even though they tend to be born at roughly uh, the same rate so if you want there to be fewer bears if you're out there to help protect elk protect a deer and there's you know a lot or too many bears in the unit or area then you should probably be targeting sows if you're just out there for the fun of it or you want an especially big bear then you should be targeting boars it really takes a trained eye to tell the difference between the two and determining bear size especially when they're out on hillside is really really difficult they are one of the toughest animals out there to field judge accurately. And you'll hear all kinds of people say all kinds of things about how big a bear is. And uh, especially when it comes to weight, gosh, it's pretty tough to figure out how to get a scale out there to weigh these animals whole. And I only know a couple biologists who have even pulled it off. And mostly that's biologists who are trapping these bears tranquilizing them and then weighing them when they're alive to actually do it in field conditions where you don't know where that bear is going to end up um, you know after you've shot them and got your hands on them being able to, to weigh these bears is difficult so people are guessing and they're not very good guessers because you know what do you have to really compare it to now some areas especially on the east coast where you can drive to a lot of the bears that get harvested then they've got a real opportunity to actually get these bears on hooks and start weighing them so i trust those guys a little bit more than i do you know the guys out west where they're hunting in mountains and canyons and really can't get that bear to a scale okay let's talk about what to bring with you spring bear hunting in the west is mostly about glassing so optics are going to be a priority uh, the optics that i really like to use are sig sour zulu 6 stabilized binoculars so you can get these things in 10 power 16 power and i think 12 power they're fantastic so the way they work is they have two gyroscopes that stabilize the prism inside the binoculars and what that means is that when you flip a lever forward and turn the stabilization on, even though your hands might be shaking, which everybody does when they hold up binoculars, the image remains stable. 
So it's even better than like glassing through a spotting scope on a tripod because you've just got this steady image. You can glass with one hand and a trekking pole dangling from your wrist and it'll be a really steady image. Steady enough that if you have an animal that's moving inside your field of view, you'll be able to pick up that movement. And you can never do that if you're holding up normal binoculars because you're constantly shaking and your image is shaking. So if you have movement inside your field of view, it's just movement within movement and our eyes aren't built to pick that up. So much more challenging. So that's a really critical piece of gear. Uh, range finders. And I want the range finder that can, you know, find a target as far away as possible. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to be shooting five or 6,000 yards. It's ridiculous. But if I see a bear that is several miles away on a hillside, I want to be able to range that hillside and figure out exactly where that bear is and then plot that on my map so that I can figure out a way to get over there. Really, really important. And then what happens a lot of times in, in these spring bear hunts is you end up shooting across canyons. And when you do that, by the time you get over there, it looks completely different than it did from where you actually shot from. Okay. So if you can use your rangefinder to figure out the distance and use a compass to figure out the direction to the location where you just shot or the last location that you saw the bear before you went into the brush, you are hours ahead in the game. By the time you get over there, you have so much less to figure out. You know exactly where to start that search. Really, really important. So I want a rangefinder that can hit as far away as possible. Uh, the SIG Kilo 10K is a good option for that, but I don't really need two pairs of binoculars. Uh, so what I'm probably going to opt for is the Kilo 8K, which is a handheld rangefinder. It's lightweight. It can range really long ways. It has a compass in it. I'm going to check that with, with another compass because there's just no electronic compasses in the world that are that accurate. So I'll check that with a, with a regular magnetic compass as well. And between those two tools, I can be very accurate in where I actually plot where I think an animal is or was. So those are two really critical pieces of gear. Sometimes a spotting scope is what you need. So if I'm going to be glassing primarily distances that are less than 3,000 yards, then 16 power binoculars, stabilized binoculars are fantastic. Really the only tool that I need. But if I might be looking, you know, three, four, five, six miles and, and looking for bears at that distance, that's when I'm going to need a spotting scope. And you're going to want something with significant zoom. You're going to want a large objective because first and last light are really critical time periods for bears, especially last light. I wouldn't know that much about first light because during spring bear season, the sun comes up at like three o'clock in the morning and uh, I want to sleep. So last light is my game there. And uh, a larger objective is going to help more light come through that system. Something like at least 12 power is great for for looking up close. And then if you're going to be looking at that 3,000 yard plus distance, that's when you want to maybe start with something that's like 27 power or 30 power and has, you know, a really good system for, for adjusting your focus. For those longer distance glassing sessions, uh, 
man, that the Oscar eight from SIG is a great spotting scope. I think that's probably going to be the move. It is heavy. Um, you're not going to want to carry it, but the weight makes sense. If you understand that that thing is helping you see what would take you miles of hiking to see otherwise, right? So if I only have to carry this thing for two miles and now I can see for an additional three or four miles, okay, I'm bringing a couple extra pounds with me, but so what? That's better than me actually having to hike that distance just on speculation that I might find something once I get there. As far as clothes go, um, camouflage is not going to be all that important for a spot and stock type scenario, but if you're in an ambush scenario or you're calling, camouflage might help a little bit. There's a lot of myths about how well a bear can see. And while it's true that their vision isn't as good as say like an antelope or a mule deer or even a human, it's, it's still decent. I think you can get by just fine on solid colors, but, uh, yeah, wear, wear camo if you like, um, there's a good chance you're going to run into other critters while you're out there. And that's something that you can add on to a spring bear hunt. Maybe you can go turkey hunting at the same time, or you can go mountain lion hunting at the same time. So it really does make sense to bring the appropriate camouflage. If you're going to be in, in an area that has dry grass left over, um, then Cryptic Highlander is going to be a really good pattern to wear. But if you're going to be in that sort of green, lush, new growth area, then the Cryptek altitude pattern is going to be significantly better. I've also been impressed with how altitude does in dead grass. I, and I've got to eat some crow on this because I've, I've talked trash about green camouflage in the past because there are no green mammals, but it really does work well. Um, I, I've been surprised at how well that stuff does work in, in a multitude of environments. And that's one of the really cool things about the technology that, that Cryptech has put into their research and into their camouflage patterns is just how adaptive it is. Cryptech means uh, hidden technologies, in case you didn't know. So cryptos and tech, right? The other thing about clothes, man, you're going to need stuff for the weather. And weather in the springtime, it can be snowing and blowing and 20 degrees, or it can rain on you, or it can be 70 degrees and hot. So it's a time of year where you need a pretty dynamic kit. So just do your research on what the weather might throw at you and bring the right stuff for it. It's sort of the best stuff I can tell you. This, uh, this last spring, my tent almost collapsed when I was spiked out because so much snow um, accumulated on top of me. And if I wasn't constantly kicking the snow off the tent, it probably would have collapsed, but it didn't. Um, all good. So yeah, I definitely had some, some cold mornings and some tough hiking there in those sort of snowy, muddy conditions. But there was also days where I was putting on sunscreen and, you know, kicking back and getting the, the first tan of the year. So you just get it all in the springtime. So you need a pretty dynamic kit as far as that's concerned for your pack. Again, pretty dynamic. You might just be like striking out and day hunting a little bit, but you do need to be able to pack weight as well. So there's a couple different pack options that I would recommend when I spiked out and did like a big hiking loop for my bear hunt this spring. I took the Eberly stock F1 mainframe and on that, I had the Vapor 5000 bag, 
And I had plenty of room for three days worth of gear and then room to put uh, a whole bear on my back as well, as long as it wasn't a super big bear, which, uh, which I did not get a super big bear. I got not a big bear, but a really cool looking one. And it was actually later on and, uh, and I didn't even need to spike out for that bear, which, uh, happens often enough, right? Sometimes you see him from camp. That was not the case on this one, but it wasn't that far from camp. So a good option for a pack for if you're going to be going out on, on shorter hunts, just day hunts, that's going to be that uh, Everly Stock Gunslinger 2. It has an external frame. It's got a scabbard for your gun. It's got um, a nice big compartment with a couple different ways to access it for your gear. And it's got another shelf um, that straps around the back. I packed out three quarters of elk with it this fall. Really, really impressed. Um, I have had like day packs with frames before that, uh, that I thought, well, if I need to pack a quarter, I can. And then when it comes down to it and you actually throw another 80 pounds of meat on there, it's awful. Um, it is just crippling and you understand immediately, okay, this pack wasn't designed for that. The gunslinger two, on the other hand, absolutely handles the weight. Um, in fact, I actually packed out two quarters at once, not a long ways, um, but two quarters of elk is a really significant amount of weight. Um, it was a hind in the front. So I don't know, call that hundred and something well over hundred pounds. Um, and that was plus, plus my kit that I already had for, for a day pack to be able to do that. Absolutely incredible. Uh, hats off to those guys. They made, made a banger of a pack with that deal. Okay. So now we need to talk about your rifle. The rifle that I hunt with is the Sig Sauer cross rifle. When I have the ammo for it, I use 277 Sig Fury. I don't think that that one is out for the public yet, but it will be at some point, I promise. And it's pretty cool because it, it shoots like a long action 270, um, that's coming out of a 24, 26 inch barrel. But this does it in short action with a normal sized AICS magazine. And it does it basically a 308 neck down to 27 caliber. But it has this, this hybrid case design where the base of it is made out of uh, stainless steel. And because of that, they can push the, the PSI from 60,000 to 80,000. And basically, yeah, you get long action, long barrel, 270 performance from a short action. 16 inch barrel. So I'm getting, uh, 2,800 feet per second with a 150 grain bullet out of a 16 inch barrel. You, you throw a silencer on there and now you've got a really, really cool gun. That's still compact. The cross rifle itself weighs six and a half pounds. Um, that's a good weight for, for a gun. It makes it shootable, but it's, uh, it's not super heavy. If it's too light, then the recoil is difficult to manage and it can actually be difficult to hold the gun steady on target and field conditions. And then optics for the gun. I like, uh, I like to have a reticle in my scope. Um, I really like mill reticles. If you're an MOA guy, then get an MOA reticle. But if you understand your mills and your MOA a little bit, which is a whole nother subject, you can use that to determine how big a bear is. So if you see a bear on the hillside, you can put your your mills or your MOA on that bear with your reticle. And then if you know the distance, then you can determine how big that bear is. So if you're, 
if you're targeting a specific size bear or you're new to the game and you know you just kind of want to know what you're going to be walking up on then using your reticle to measure the length of a bear is pretty cool it's also a good way to determine how high you need to hold and how far you need to hold left or right based on the wind conditions at the time so most of your tactical shooters a lot of your um, competition shooters and then some of your hunters are going to be using these uh, these mill and moa reticles so for me i'm using uh, the tango 6 from sig and i use either a 3 to 18 or a 5 to 30 um, depending on the conditions there uh, next year i might be using the the whiskey 6 i've started using that a little bit this fall it is a fantastically bright and clear scope. It's a good value and it's a lot lighter than the Tango 6 and ounces count. So any way that I can go to make that lighter is going to be a good thing. So that's a little bit about sort of the rifle system. And then shooting supports is going to be another critical thing. If I'm going to be bringing a spotting scope, which I probably am, I'm going to have a tripod for that spotting scope, right? So the mount that I use to mount my tripod to my spotting scope is called an ARCA plate, A-R-C-A. And it's common within photography, and it's becoming much more common within the shooting community too. So this is the plate that goes on the bottom of my camera, on the bottom of my spotting scope. Um, I have a little ARCA plate for my rangefinder if I really want to steady that up. And then I have an ARCA plate on the bottom of my cross rifle forend. So I can use the same tripod to steady all of these things. And that's really fantastic. If you don't want to get into the ARCA thing, another option is shooting with, um, with a Spartan system, which works really well on the cross rifle. So you can have a Spartan bipod that connects and disconnects, which is fantastic because I don't want my bipod attached to the gun all the time, especially as I'm sliding it in and out of the scabbard on an Eberly stock pack or whatever. It's, it's just cumbersome for 99% of the time, then 1% of the time it's useful. So having that detachable Spartan bipod is a pretty good system, especially for this rifle. Um, for the tripods, they're going to be a little bit less steady than what you'll find with some of the other high-end tripods, like the you know, the tripod that I use the most is from Two Vets Tripod. It's called the No Name. It's like five pounds, but man, it's awesome. It's so steady and strong. So whether I'm using it for my spotting scope or for my rifle, this is a great system. And I take most of my shots off this gun. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did take the, the Spartan Tripod system out and I ended up shooting a, shooting a bear across the canyon with that. And it worked great. And you can get all of those same adapting mounts for for your different optics or cameras or whatever you can you can do all that with uh, with the spartan system as well so those are two different methods to look into another one that i highly recommend is bringing a lightweight shooting bag with you now my bag comes from armageddon gear and it's full of all these little foam pellets that uh that are nice and squishy and it's just this little cordura bag i use it for my camp pillow when i'm you know laying in my tent at night and if you rest that thing either underneath your buttstock right next to your shoulder on a prone shot, or if you set it down over a rock or a limb, then you can rest your forehand on it. It just, it makes for a really good solid place to shoot from, and it doesn't weigh very much, and it's got multiple uses. Highly recommend that. 
I did forget mine on a bear hunt a couple of years ago and we had time. Uh, I watched this bear go into a timber patch and I could see all the way around that timber patch. So I knew it was going to stay in there. And if it came out, I was going to be able to see it no matter which way it came out. And I was going to shoot across the canyon because that was the only way to get a shot without um, my wind blowing towards the bear. So I took the top pouch of my pack off, I filled it up with sand from the hillside, and I made a sandbag right there on the spot. And, you know, I created this little shooting position that was just rock steady. And, uh, and then when the opportunity happened for that bear to come out, I was able to make a great shot. So that worked really well. Some other things that you're going to need to bring that are a little bit outside the normal game bags. That's a normal thing. I like the Argali game bags. They work super well and you can use them again and again and again. I don't know if they'll last a lifetime, but I've not worn one out yet. Even when I'm putting like kind of jagged bones and stuff like that in there, usually that's how I tear game bags and these things have been super tough. The other thing that I bring uh, for for bears in the springtime when it can be really warm is salt. So I'll just bring um, livestock salt that you buy at your local feed store. And then when you flesh out that bear hide, you can rub it down with salt and you can actually preserve it out there and keep that hair from slipping and falling off if you're going to be in warm conditions. This is what we did when I was in Africa. We actually had a salt room. So every animal would get skinned, fleshed completely, you know, the day that it was was shot and and then buried in that salt and you know those those hides work out tremendously this is how we've been treating hides for a really long time that livestock salt is inexpensive and you're you're going to be buying loose salt that's as fine as you can as you can get so there's different coarsenesses but fine livestock salt is going to be your move uh the how to hunt portion of it there's a, there's a few different ways. Some states allow baiting. Uh, I highly encourage you to go out and experience that. If you can go hunt bears over bait, you're going to have a really great experience because you're going to get to be selective about the color or the size. You'll get to observe those bears a little bit more. You'll be able to make sure that it doesn't have cubs with it and it's static. So it doesn't require as much physical exertion. So if you've got any kind of physical limitations, then hunting over bait is going to be a, a fantastic option. So for there, uh, Idaho, Alaska, Canada really come to mind as sort of the premier places for, for hunting bears over bait in the springtime. Some places allow you to hunt with hounds. That can be a really exciting and fun way to hunt bears. And again, once the, the dogs get that bear bait up or in a tree, you can make the determination about whether or not you should harvest that bear, you know, you can tell, okay, that's a big boar or that's a sow, or I'm going to let this one go. You can start making your own management decisions a little bit. Whereas if you're just seeing bears on a hillside, it's really difficult to know exactly what it is you're looking at. Not impossible, but it is a skill. So that brings us into the spot and stock style of hunting, which is my preferred method. That means I'm going out and I'm finding places that I think a bear is going to be. So I'm going to be looking for places that have green grass that's maybe, you know, a thousand vertical feet below the snow line or 500 vertical feet below the snow line when that fresh green grass is coming up. I also want water nearby and I want there to be um, some, some timber, some type of cover for bear to go in and out of. 
So those are the places that, that I'm looking for bears. So I'll get a distance away from there so that my wind can't contaminate that area. And then I'll start glassing. And I may sit in one spot all day long. I may sit there for multiple days and just glass and glass and glass. And bears are traveling a lot this time of year. Again, I'm probably hunting in in April if I get the chance. And uh, yeah, they're moving a ton. So just because you didn't see a bear all day long doesn't mean that you should leave, right? Because if it's a good spot and it's got everything a bear needs, then you should be realizing that a bear is going to show up in that area. Um, just have confidence, have patience, and it's going to pay off. Once you see that bear, you can see kind of where it's going, um, what its behavior is like, and is this bear traveling or is it going to stay right there? Is it going to go bed down for a little bit? That's going to be your opportunity to figure out how to make your stock within shooting range and then get in there um, just as close as you possibly can. And I encourage closeness. You know, if you can get closer, you should do that because closer shots are shots that you're more likely to connect with. I'll give you an example. This spring I was hiking up a canyon and I saw a bear at 800 yards and it was feeding up against this rim, up against this cliff. And I thought, okay, I can make this. And it was first thing in the morning, the wind was coming down. I got up to 600 yards. Okay, too far. Um, I got up to 500 yards. Now this is a distance that I was shooting at really well on the range. I was fully confident with the wind conditions. I can definitely make the shot. I can find a shooting position, but I still had the wind and the bear wasn't going anywhere. So I decided to get closer and closer at that point meant that I was going to get within 180 yards because I had to go up a side canyon, come up over a ridge, find another cliff, get on top of that cliff. And then I could shoot across a, a real narrow canyon right into where this bear was. And uh, I got into that position and started glassing and the bear had laid down and I could just see the tip of one of his ears. I thought, well, we're good. Now all I have to be is patient. What happened next was outside of my control. The wind switched directions, but I'd already accounted for that. So my scent, even if the wind switched, was not going to get to this bear. It was, it was basically impossible based on how the, how the terrain laid out. And that's why I'd picked this shooting position. But it started blowing up Canyon and there were some other, other hunters that were coming up and they're actually turkey hunting and they're being loud and they're talking. And, um, this bear went from asleep to running away, um, immediately without giving me an opportunity. And that's okay because a couple days later I got another bear and it was perfectly fine. And I'm happy that I made the decision to go ahead and get closer even though it didn't work out. And even though I could have made the longer shot, um, there's just more that can go wrong with a longer shot. So if you can get closer, I encourage you to do so regardless of what your shooting skill is. Let's, let's put more emphasis on our hunting and on our stalking skills. So spot and stalk, and it's, it's fun. Find it, find a hillside that you can sit on with one of your buddies or by yourself. And you can just, you can talk and make jokes and, and look through your glass and observe the terrain and see the wildlife. It's a great time of year to be out there. And then the, the last popular approach to hunting bears in the springtime is calling. And for this, you're going to have to wait until that, that June time frame when they're starting to really target um, baby animals to eat. And some sounds that are effective are like 
bear in distress, cub, cub in distress. The problem with cub in distress is that you can call in both boars and sows. A sow will come in to protect what she thinks might be one of her cubs that got away and, uh, and is, is being mauled or eaten by a boar or a mountain lion or a wolf or something like that. And she might leave her cubs behind. So you could have a bear that comes in really aggressively and looks like it doesn't have cubs with her, but she might've sent her cubs up a tree. Um, you can also get big boars that come in, uh, and they're all excited to, to kill a baby bear. That can be a really exciting experience, but you do, you do run that risk. So it's not a sound that I recommend you using very much. Another approach is your calf elk in distress, your fawn in distress, rabbit distress. I've called bears in by just squeaking with my lips. I've had friends call bears in with just a mouse squeaker. And they're generally a fairly curious animal, especially if they're comfortable and confident in their area and they're not alerted by something else. Yeah, a bear will come in to, to eat anything. You know, they spend a lot of their year just living off eating ants and ant larvae and really small things. So a bear coming in to, to eat a little squeaking mouse, that's just part of his day. You know, he's, he's willing to do that. So you can use all kinds of sounds to call on a bear. Wayne Carlton says that for bears, he wants to see them before he starts calling um, so that he can change his, his calling based on how the bear is reacting. And another thing that he's observed is that bears tend to come for as long as the sound is being made. And if the sound stops, the bear stops. I found that to be true until the bear gets pretty close. And then if you stop calling, a lot of times that bear is still going to keep coming. So that's the time to be super ready for whatever's going to happen next. And then uh, the last thing that you can do as far as hunting techniques is just going to be an ambush. So find a, a meadow or a little clearing that you think a bear might stumble into and, uh, and set up and wait. And that's really effective for a lot of people. So we've talked plenty about sows versus boars, but I'll just reiterate, if you are hunting in order to protect deer or elk or to reduce the bear population, then you're better off targeting sows. If you want to increase the bear population or if you want to target a larger animal specifically, then you're going to want to target boars. Bear meat. Uh, bear meat tends to be pretty greasy, so this is definitely going to be an animal that you want to bring gloves for, otherwise you'll get covered in bear grease. And if you're out there for, for multiple days, then uh, you don't necessarily want to crawl inside your sleeping bag if you're covered in, covered in bear grease. So bring some gloves. Take your time when you're, when you're skinning the animal. Their skin is very thin, so it's super easy to poke a hole through. So just really take your time, especially around the belly and the flanks. Um, the flanks and the armpits are the two places that I am most likely to, to get in a hurry and accidentally cut through. So just really take your time. And then if you can leave as much fat and meat on the carcass as possible, then you'll have a lot easier job of fleshing. Or if you're just taking it straight to your taxidermist, they will have an easier job. And uh, I've yet to find a taxidermist that really likes fleshing and dealing with bears because of that grease, because it's a lot more work than it is for a deer or an elk. So the easier you can make their lives, the better. Skulls. Um, bear skulls are super cool. 
and it is something that's required to bring out to to check stations everywhere that I've ever hunted. Biologists will typically pull one little tiny tooth back behind the canine so you won't even notice it's gone. And that's what they'll send into a lab to determine the age of the bear. They'll put that information into a computer model and they'll use that model to determine the bear population in that area. At least that's how it works in Oregon. But everywhere that I've ever hunted bears, they do require you to, uh, to submit a tooth. And typically you're checking in your hide and your skull to a biologist um, so that they can uh, give you a, a tag an additional tag than, than what you already have for that hide or, or that skull and then pull that tooth. And, uh, and bear skulls are cool. Um, I've got a big old pile of them on top of my refrigerator and I look at them every time I go to take a sip of milk or whatever. One thing to be aware of during spring bear season is ticks. So that's just a common enough thing. It's springtime, ticks are crawling around, you're sitting in the grass, they'll get all over you. Uh, ticks carry a number of diseases none of which are ones that you want. So there's a product called permethrin that you can spray on your clothing and it will uh, it will treat your clothes for the whole hunt and prevent ticks from crawling on you. Highly recommend that stuff. Works great. Probably causes like 19 kinds of cancer, but Lyme disease is awful. So uh, which set of dice do you want to roll? It's really up to you. I do not like uh, having ticks on me. I really hate pulling ticks off of me that are dug into my skin. Um, it icks me out. No fun. So permethrin it is. Uh, having gaiters on really helps as well. And typically you're going to be in and out of mud and cricks and all kinds of stuff. You can walk through water, it, especially if it's only a few steps, um, like a you know typical springtime crick often is that's over the top of your boots, but under your gaiters and your feet will stay dry. You know, if you just kind of run across and that's a, that's an amazing thing. There's really no disadvantage to, uh, to wearing gaiters unless I guess it's, it's super hot outside, but even if it's super hot, I'm probably still going to wear gaiters and then I'm just going to wear shorts instead of pants, but they'll, they'll help you with a lot of the scratches and stuff that you get on your lower legs and yeah, wear gaiters and it'll, it'll help you just about in every way in the springtime. And then uh, a couple other nice things about spring bear hunting is you can go out and you can have a camp and you can uh, have a really cool base camp. That's something that I always focus on is just having a fun base camp and having a good cook tent and being creative about the foods that I'm going to make. And I like to have a big stack of Dutch ovens so that I can, you know, cook four different dishes and three different courses of a meal all in cast iron with, uh, with charcoal. I like to make cast iron pizzas and, you know, it's, it's really fun for me to be able to, to get creative with, with all the different things that I can cook and, you know, maybe have like a nice cocktail that you made up beforehand. And that's going to be the bear camp cocktail of the year. And you can sit around fire at night and, and uh, listen to people tell stories and tell some of your own and smoke a cigar and, you know, have a drink and have a nice piece of meat or whatever. Um, Spring Bear Camp is, is just some of the most fun. And it's laid back because nobody's that serious about it. Like you're just enjoying being out there. And, you know, if you're on a river, you can fish a little bit. Or if you're in a place that you can hunt turkeys, you can throw that into the mix. It's just 
it's fun, but it requires some planning. It requires some preparation. It requires some knowledge. And uh, anyways, I, I hope that this podcast is is giving you at least a baseline or a little bit of curiosity or, or broken down a barrier for someone who wanted to go spring bear hunting but didn't necessarily know like even where to get started and I've gotten a lot of those messages so this is something that I wanted to talk about for you guys if you've got questions about spring bear hunting um, I've written a few different articles on it you can google those um, by googling my name and, and bear hunting and then uh you're always more than welcome to, to write to me and, and I'll get back to you because um, I get back to everybody. And I won't be able to do that forever, but right now I'm still able to keep up with all the messages. So if you've got a question um, specifically about spring bear hunting, then, then write it to me and, uh, and I'll get to you. So you can write to me on Instagram or you can post your question um, under the review page on Apple Podcasts and I'll, I'll find that and I'll write back to you. So... Thank you very much for listening, and I encourage you to get out there and uh, find yourself at Spring Bear to Hunt. Uh, Heck of a good time. Highly recommend. 10 out of 10. What I remember is getting up in the dark, shuffling on out to the pickup and climbing in, heading out, headlights going out over the fields and the roads and getting back into the the mountains and the timber and knowing that there was a, a destination out there that that I was going to be sharing with my dad. And at some point, either during the drive or, or once we got out to some ridge that we were going to be watching when the sun came up, you'd hear that, that little squeak of, uh, of the lid coming off of the thermos. And then you unscrew that top part a little bit, pour that coffee or hot chocolate into a cup, and uh, you can just see the little tiny vapors of steam coming off of it, curling up into the morning. And holding on to that thing like like it was a prayer and you know blowing some of the heat off of it and taking that that first hot drink in the morning and then the same thing that evening you know because if there was anything left it was still going to be hot like those are core memories those are part of part of growing up and part of being an adult and then sharing that now you know I'm I'm getting to share that with my nephew and giving him those experiences and it's an accessory to the experience but part of what I remember about hunting and working with my family as a little kid was that there was this green beat to hell still going strong Stanley thermos and now there's a complete line of Stanley products out there and if you go to stanley1913.com you can look into those and see if there's something out there that you need or that you want or that you would like to give to somebody else. And if you use the discount code 6RANCH, the number 6 and the word RANCH, and you can get 25% off of just about anything in their store. I encourage you to do it. They're great supporters of this show. They're great supporters of this audience. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all of your support and your attention. We're not stopping. We're going strong. And... Uh, I'm glad to to pass along this discount to you guys, and I hope that you find something that can help develop that core memory for you and, and the people that you love. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. 
Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.